Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of January 15th, 2018. On this week's show, I will pretend to speak in an upbeat manner as we talk about the NFL's divisional playoff weekend, which the New Orleanians among us experienced as unadulterated pain, but was reportedly a happy occasion for those in Minnesota, and Blake Bortles fans and the Eagles and Patriots, they won too. In the realm of sports joy, there is Oklahoma freshman guard Trey Young, who has the closest thing to Steph Curry, this side of Steph Curry. Ben Cohen of the Wall Street Journal will join us to discuss and explain and revel. And finally, Sam Miller of ESPN will come on the show to ponder a question that I don't think anyone had ever pondered, and maybe for good reason. What would happen if a baseball game went for 50 innings? Joining me in Washington, D.C. for this non-marathon of a podcast is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Maybe I should leave open the possibility that this will go into extra, what, do you, what would you even call it? Extra segments? Extra segments? Extra segments. I don't think that's going to happen. But hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And I'm going to allow you to lead the segment. I'm just going to sit back and... And enjoy. All right. Well, trigger warning, Josh and other Saints fans. I'm going to play the local radio call of the game-ending pass from Vikings quarterback Case Keenum to wide receiver Stefan Diggs now. Paul Allen of KFAN in Minneapolis is on the play-by-play. The color guy is former Vikings player Pete Bursich. Sorry, Josh. He has not heard this yet. Let's listen. 10 seconds to go. 24-23 Saints. Vikings at their own 39. It's third down. Three receivers right, feel, and left. Marshawn Lattimore, 12 yards from Adam. Case on a deep drop, steps up in the pocket. He'll fire to the right side, caught by Diggs. Stay oh, my God, oh, my God. 30, no K, way. touchdown. Oh. Are you kidding me? It's a Minneapolis no miracle. Stephon Diggs and the Minnesota oh, Vikings have lost up on the New 
Orleans Saints. It's a 61-yard Minneapolis miracle. That is a good radio call. The Vikings won the game 29-24, to of course, and it really was one of the most amazing finishes, sorry, Josh, in the history of the National Football League. You can stop apologizing, League. dude. Can it I stop amazing. apologizing? It was, it was amazing. It also sets up two very narrative-friendly conference championships in the National Conference, two teams with hard luck histories. They're 0 for 6 in the Super Bowl. They'll get another crack at one, or one of them will. That would be Minnesota and Philadelphia. In the AFC, the New England Patriots, who have played in nine of the 51 previous Super Bowls and won five of them, will host the Jacksonville Jaguars, who have played in zero, but they are led by Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles. Blake Bortles. Calling Mike Pesca. Josh Levine, how are you feeling? So in the interest of equal time, I think we have to note that um, the Saints and the Vikings played in the NFC championship game in 2010. Um, it was tied at 28. Vikings had the ball on the Saints' uh, 38-yard line. We're not playing a clip here. 19 though, seconds left in the fourth quarter. Um, let's listen to Paul Allen of KFAN on the call. Brett Favre goes back to pass. He pumps. Now he fires over the middle. Intercepted. I can't believe what I'm seeing right now. It was intercepted by Tracy Porter. Near side to the 40. And John Sullivan runs him down at the 47-yard line. You've got to be kidding me. I can't believe what I just saw. Looking at that play, he should have just held on to it, Paul. He should have. He could have easily gotten five or six yards if he would have just pulled that thing down and dove forward. But why do you even ponder passing? I mean, you can take a knee and try a 56-yard field goal. This is not Detroit, man. This is the Super Bowl. So th- that's just like, that's awful. You know? What's let, awful? Let the minute. You, you had your moment. No, I'm going to turn this into, a, into an own on myself. Okay. But that's Paul Allen. I think people need to hear the full range of what Paul Allen is about. He's uh, capable of both ends of the, of the, of the, the, the terrible exciting spectrum. So I wrote in 2012, um, the Saints lost to the 49ers in the playoffs. Um, and a not, I mean, there's never been like a walk-off touchdown like this in the history of the playoffs. Like this was unprecedented. It was, there's never been anything like that before. But the Saints lost on like a last second drive to the 49ers in that playoff game. And I wrote in that piece that I did for Slate back then that I had listened to that Paul Paul Allen, why do you even ponder passing video dozens of times just to experience the schadenfreude. So I deserve this. You do. It's karma for me. But the kind of larger point here that I wrote about then and I think applies today is that when an amazing play happens like that, it just erases everything that had happened before. That game, had, there's so much stuff happened that is now forgotten and seems Irrelevant. The Drew Brees pass to Willie Sneed on fourth and ten. Um, that had when led I was to the like, Saints I, game, quote unquote, game winning field goal. And I, I was sitting at home tweeting that they should have tried the sixty four yard field goal. Um, and other plays that the Vikings made too. Um, just this, the play from Keenum to Diggs just overwrites everything else that had happened in the game. And I also want to focus specifically on that play. Maybe you have some thoughts on on what happened there on Marcus Williams, the guy who missed the tackle. Um, it looked like he was worried about getting called for pass interference by hitting him too soon. And he put his head down um, to try to avoid him. 
instead of going in or slowing down, which is incredibly hard to do. I think to criticize Marcus Williams here is very easy. And of course, your Bayless's and, and Smith's did here. But the speed with which that play develops is, is, is crazy. And yeah, in hindsight, should have, should have, should have stood up, should have kept his head up, should have just focused on stopping and grabbing him after he catches the ball, if he catches the ball and throwing him to the ground so that the game ends and make sure that he doesn't go out of bounds. And he was like five yards inside the, 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 from, from the sideline. So the likelihood of him falling and getting out of bounds was pretty low. But still, the speed with which NFL plays happen is crazy. And on the other side, the play that Stefan Diggs made is one of the m- most amazing athletic performances that you will see in a situation like that. To go up that high, off balance, come down with your back facing the end zone have the wherewithal to first consider whether I should step out of bounds or not, which I think he did. It looked like he hesitated for a second. And then second, to be able to locate around you any defenders, realize, holy shit, there's nobody there, and not like trip over your shoelaces going to the end zone. It's a pretty great athletic play. As Roger Sherman pointed out in The Ringer, there were some, shall we say, issues with the scheme the Saints were playing. Like they had a guy guarding the sideline at the Vikings' own 40 as if they needed to worry that like they were going to set up for a 78-yard field goal or some such nonsense. I mean, the way that you just described it, it's you made it sound like obviously there are like 60-plus yard touchdowns that happen in the last seconds of games all the time. It's so hard to defend. Like. This was not a this is not a challenging play to defend. That's the reason that it, this is like a once in a lifetime play. But like yeah. as it played out like for whatever reason Marcus Williams was kind of like on an island as like the last defender on this play. Like he should never have been and in that late position. To the, and late to the receiver too. And speaking of things that um get forgotten when this one play kind of like overwrites all of our memory, the Saints had gotten like two massive pass interference penalties earlier in the game. So I think you're right. That was probably playing into his thinking that he didn't Mm -hmm. want to get an interference penalty. But putting aside all of that stuff, I mean, one more thought. The the like kind of like comic genius of how bad it was that is that he actually knocked Knocked over the only other player on his own team that had a chance to tackle him. Like that's how amazingly bad the play was. Not that it was his fault necessarily. But I think for me, the reason that this was not as upsetting as it might have otherwise been is that I just felt so bad for that guy. Um, He had a great interception earlier in the game. He He had a really good rookie year. His teammates, I think, were all very generous and seemed sincere in saying that they don't blame him and he's a good dude and, you know, he'll learn from this, whatever. He obviously took it extremely hard. You could tell based on what he said and um, reports that he was crying in the locker room. And like, this is just not for me as hard a game to take as one in which like the fail Mary game, if that had happened and it was just like a bad call by the refs, um, those games I think are, are worse to take 
as fans because we don't think of the refs as like people and like oh they make mistakes. It's like fuck that. Like you're, <laughs> I don't I don't have as much right, empathy it, for the ref as just, I do for Marcus Williams. Even if it's just an obvious successful play by the offense where the defense isn't quite so culpable, it's the it's the obvious culpability by one player that makes it so it's Buckner esque. I mean right. it's a it's a signature kind of moment where you can pinpoint and it's so easy to say should have done this should have done that should have done that. And that being said, like, I don't want to make it seem like I'm totally stoic about this defeat. And, like, it's funny. Like, I was able to kind of turn off the game and, like, do uh, do other stuff and be like, ah, oh, that was a good season, whatever. And then just, like, the sympathy texts start pouring in, the condolence emails. It's nice to hear from people that you don't hear of normally to say they feel bad for you. It's good to know that yeah, people, are, nice. so people are thinking of you. But then, like, if you go... And I think rightly so. Like if you go online or if you like talk to people who are sports fans, it's like there's no getting away from this result. It's like you're you're dragged into the like amazingness of this play and the like historic nature of what happened. You cannot um, – I, I, I thought I had been able to successfully convince myself of like, eh, oh, well, that was just like, you know, the team lost the game. But then I've just been told repeatedly – for the last like you know twelve hours, eighteen hours, like this is not normal. Right. You should feel really, right. really bad about this. So if Stefan Diggs catches that ball and manages to get out of bounds, and Kai Forbath kicks a fifty-nine yard field goal to win the game, you're not feeling the way you're feeling. I don't know. I mean, because it's, it's really hard to as... say. I feel like the fact that he did what he did and it was just like so crazy makes it less bad. Yeah. I feel I like that's true. I feel like, oh my God, I cannot believe they let this guy like catch a ball on the sideline, 30 yards, get out of bounds and kick the field goal. It'd be like, that would be pain. That that's would be a painful. normal football play that we see happen every week and happened on the previous drive with Drew Brees, who was, by the way, magnificent. He was in the second half. And it was, the Saints came back from 17 points down. It's a performance that will not be remembered and obviously shouldn't be remembered because what the Vikings did was, uh, you know, deserves all of the acclaim and and the credit that it's going to get. But um, it's just, you know, this is a game that reminds you of like how narrow margins are in sports, how, um, you know, you can do everything right. And if one guy does something spectacularly wrong, then it doesn't matter. so, yeah, I mean, it's it's also nice, I guess, um, to be talking about a football game um, as a football game. Yeah. And um, this was a reminder that, like, football and professional football, which just so often has not done this for the past few years, can provide just, like, some amazing drama and amazing, like, <laughs> moments that are about the sport itself and not about anything anything else. We did, though, let's not forget, have a player uh, get hit from the blind side, go down to the ground, and demonstrate the fencing response, the sign of uh, uh, obvious concussion in this game. And the punter made a tackle. He got hurt, too. Yeah, there was, there was some, there was some, some injuries. There were some injuries. Yeah. It is professional football. So this has set us up for um, a Final Four in the NFL. And I got to say, the Saints made the Final Five, being in that last slot on the weekend. Mm-hmm. You're in the Final Five. That's all you can hope for. Um, this has set us up for a Case Keenum, Nick Foles, Blake Bortles, Tom Brady final quarterbacking 
quartet. I do want to let's talk about Blake Bortles. Shall we talk about Blake yeah. Bortles? So it is extremely rare that you can come away from watching a game in which the winning team scores 45, 45, 42 game. And about that winning team be like, man, the quarterback that led his team to 45 points just is really not that good. And the defense that just gave 42 points is amazing. They're so excellent. Um, Jacksonville Jaguars are an incredibly strange team. Yeah. Their defense has been, I mean, incredibly good. Like, historically good. This was a fantastic team during the regular season. And I just want to say that I think the Blake Bortles situation has escalated. I think partly because of Mike Pesca, as, as I alluded to earlier on this podcast. You mean in terms of mockery it's escalated? The mockery of Blake Bortles. I think Mike is right that it has something to do with the fact that his name is Blake Bortles. And I don't think Blake Bortles is as bad overall as the mockery would lead you to believe. Okay. Um, <laughs> wow. I don't. I mean, this is a quarterback. Yeah, he's totally inconsistent and he has terrible games. But it's Nobody's not saying he's like, like bad as a, at football. People are saying he's bad by the standards of like NFL quarterbacking. He's like not even close to being a, a top, sorry, elite NFL quarterback. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I mean- what what is the point of like I mean, obviously, you know you don't want to like mock the guy too savagely, or maybe you do. I'll leave it up to your pers- personal choice. But like, what's the point of like raising the bar? Like he's done. He's not good. Like what? I don't understand what you're trying to achieve here. I don't know. He's playing in the AFC Championship game. Well, Tim Tebow play, won a playoff game, so that means yeah, he's great. Well, Joe Flacco won a Super Bowl. Like, um, he was great back then. He, he threw like wore, 11 touchdowns and no interceptions those playoffs. He also wore number five. And I think that's the <laughs> connective tissue here. Number fives historically have not made great quarterbacks, I don't think. All right, Blake Stephen. Bortles, Jim Blake Bortles, Jay Flacco. Blake Bortles isn't good. But I think back to the Jaguars, I think their defense all year, has they've scored touchdowns um, off of uh, turnovers on defense. Mm-hmm. They've got, you know, Calais Campbell has been awesome as a defensive lineman. Jalen Ramsey is now guaranteeing that they're going to win the Super Bowl. He's like an incredibly charismatic uh, cornerback that they have. Miles Jack is amazing. I mean, it was maybe like one year ago when you like couldn't name any players on the Jaguars. Leonard Fournette is great, obviously. Um, And then the Vikings have an amazing defense, too. And I think we're like getting to a point in these playoffs where the macro question is like, can not very well quarterbacked teams with amazing defenses make for compelling viewing? Or have we gotten to the point where it's like, these playoffs are not going to bring us that much joy anymore? I don't know. We keep saying that. And yet the two games on Sunday were fantastic games to watch. And the two quarterbacks in question didn't play terribly. I mean, Blake Bortles... Um, <laughs> Blake Bortles was responsible. The offense was responsible for five touchdowns, and the defense had one. Um, so he was good for Bortles. He was good for Bortles. GFB and, and Nick Foles was not terrible either. He wasn't, and I think that um, that game has kind of been overshadowed by the fact that it was played first this weekend. That was a really good game, and the Falcons had a chance at the very end um, with Julio Jones, their best player, getting a jump ball in the end zone that he couldn't come down with. But um, I was just so impressed with Doug Peterson, the Eagles 
coach and Falls was just struggling at the end of the year mm-hmm. after Carson Wentz got hurt. He after came not in, playing all year either. I mean. Not playing all year. He had one good game and then he just looked so bad and in a couple of those late season games and he looked bad in the first few drives. And it's just really rare that you see um, in game coaching and it's hard to know, you know, watching on TV, but it just seemed obvious that um, the way that the plays were being called just really, really, really helped Foles and the Eagles get on track. And the, they're calling these run pass option plays where Foles was getting the ball out quickly and he was delivering the ball on time. And it it was really impressive. I was Im- I was impressed with how the Eagles were able to like manufacture enough offense to win that game. Which is why I think that even though the narrative is obviously going to be Keenum and Foles, who were both on the St. Louis Rams a few years ago, Jeff Fisher, terrible coach. Look how well they've done now. Look, they're in the NFC Championship game. And I believe their numbers are seven and nine, someone pointed out, in a very Fisher-esque <laughs> motif. <laughs> that is pretty funny. Um, and yet I think this could be a really great game. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, Case, I think Keenum, the Vikings, has been, Case the, Keenum has played well. I don't know why. Let's not lump Case No, no, no. I think that. the Vikings defense is really, really good. And I think I could see them just shutting down the Eagles completely. I don't know, though. I mean, the question, I think, is just like the Patriots versus everyone, right? And I'm proud of us for not really talking too much about the Patriots Mm -hmm. thus far. But I also think the Jaguars' defense could give Brady a lot of trouble. And I think that is going to be a very interesting matchup to watch, the Jaguars' defense versus uh, the Patriots. But you really just need the Patriots to keep – um, to keep on going to make this for make you know Vikings Patriots Super Bowl in Minnesota with the Vikings defense going against Patriots offense would be really fun to watch too. But like you know Foles versus Bortles, I'm not You're not, not down getting with that Super not Bowl? getting super duper pumped or even one super and pumped. I am totally down with Blake Bortles. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to Trey Young, I want to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I are going to strip mine our strategic conundrum reserve, and we're going to answer a baseball conundrum and a basketball conundrum. I'll give away the basketball one. It is, uh, would you rather, yourself personally, pull off the most spectacular dunk or make 30 consecutive three-pointers? Keep in mind that three-pointers are worth three points. Tiras discuss this important question. Please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Yo, pulling up from logo range. Yes, he can. Oh, and Young with the rejection. And what is not open if your name is Trey Young? Young does it again. On Saturday in Norman, Oklahoma, 19-year-old freshman Trey Young scored 43 points, 29 of those in the second half in overtime, to lead his ninth-ranked Sooners basketball team over TCU 102-97. to 
Young, who also had seven assists in the game, averages, averages 30 points and 10 assists per contest. Both figures lead the nation. Those numbers are very, very good, but they still don't do this guy justice. The way that he rainbows in threes from 30 feet and creates space with his dribble and penetrates and finds open teammates, it is incredibly fun and even thrilling to watch. Earlier this month, Ben Cohen wrote in the Wall Street Journal that the only college player in the last two decades who's put together a season anything like Young's was Steph Curry. The only NBA player with a game anything like Young's is also Steph Curry. But he's not the next Curry, Mr. Trey Young. He is the first player of the Curry generation. Joining us now is Ben Cohen. He is a sports reporter for the Journal, and his pieces are invariably excellent. This was another. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Very excited to have you on. And the lead of your piece is about this game between Oklahoma and Davidson from 10 years ago when Steph Curry was a junior. I um, watched the YouTube highlights uh, last night in preparation for the segment. Steph scored 44 points. It was unbelievable, as so many of Steph Curry's games at Davidson were. Uh, Russell Westbrook was eating nachos in the front row, and Jeff Green was eating a soft pretzel. Um, What was Kevin Durant eating? Kevin Durant, I think, was not eating anything. Um, But these guys were all in the front row, all these guys who were then on the Oklahoma City Thunder. Trey Young was also in the crowd. He was 10 years old. And as you wrote in your piece, Ben, this game had a profound impact on his life. Right. I I actually think Kevin Durant was eating a cupcake, but that might have been (laughs) off camera. Um, yeah, Trey, so Trey Young was there, which is kind of amazing. He was he was actually a ball boy for Oklahoma in the two seasons before. So he was ten years old uh, for this game. So I guess he was a little bit old to um, you know to fetch rebounds and and mop up sweat or something. But um, he he watched Curry. He he grew up recording all of his games for the Warriors. But when he was even younger, uh, when he went to this game, he got there early to watch Steph warm up which is something that seems completely reasonable now since, you know, hundreds and even thousands of people do it before Warriors games. But I don't think anyone was really doing it back then. And yet, you know, he, he this game left such an impact on him that he remembers exactly where he was sitting. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I completely understand why, right? I mean, if, if you're 10-year-old Trey Young, and even if you're a little bit older, um, if, if someone... Uh, is playing the way that would, you know, favor uh, your type of game. And he suddenly becomes the best basketball player in the world, the unanimous MVP. Um, and, and, and the game changes in your favor. Of course, you would remember everything about that. I mean, I almost think of it like if you were like a teenager in the 1960s and you're developing your musical taste and along come the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, like, of course, your life would forever be changed. Right. I mean, it would never be the same. And I think that is very much what Steph Curry did to Trey Young. But what's remarkable, I think, in that story is that he picked Steph Curry. I mean, Steph Curry wasn't, I mean, he was obviously getting some attention, but you really would have to be a young student of college basketball. He wasn't infatuated with any particular NBA player. It was this live, high-scoring, innovative player that was playing for not a major college team. So, But Stefan... Come what? on. I mean, that Davidson run in the NCAA tournament, which had happened the year before, was like life changing for a lot of people. That was the best <laughs> March. It was magical. It was totally it was. magical. It was. It yeah. was sincerely, it okay. was magical. All right. Yeah. 
But still, if you're a 10 to identify that guy as opposed to Tony Parker or someone in the NBA or Steve Nash is, is still pretty cool. And I think that one of the points you make in the piece, Ben, is that what a new generation, what younger basketball players have and what younger athletes have generally is the ability to tap into not just the aura or image of particular players, but into their specific technique and style and talents and then mimic them and try to be like those players. And you write about how Trey Young did this, not just with Steph Curry, but with other players, right? Totally. And I think, you know, in addition to being a part of this so-called Curry generation, I mean, he grew up in the age of YouTube, right? And and I think that has had um, a similarly transformational effect on a lot of these guys where in addition to just watching games and watching uh, mixtapes and highlights, Trey Young would, would go on YouTube at night and just watch drills, which, you know, someone who was even Steph's age wouldn't have been able to do when he was in high school or younger. And so, so he would watch uh, Steve Nash and he would watch Tony Parker and he watched some drill of Kyrie Irving's on YouTube where he dribbles with a plastic bag around the ball in his garage with the lights out, which sounds very Kyrie Irving. Um, (laughs) But this is what he did. So in addition to just taking hundreds of shots every day, he would watch ball handling drills on YouTube. And I I just can't imagine anyone who is all that much older than Trey Young being able to do this. The other thing that's really worth noting here is that you can practice, you know, you can put up 500 threes in a gym every day if you want, but you're not going to be able to, you know, display those skills and talents in a game unless your coach lets you. And that is really how Steph Curry has changed the game too, is that he's shown that this can be an effective strategy for winning basketball games at any level of the sport. And so you have Lon Kruger, who's a 65-year-old coach. Like this is not somebody who's like, he is not in the Curry generation. And he knows that the best chance that his team has to win and they're winning is to let Trey Young shoot from 30 feet. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And and when I talked to to Trey uh, a couple weeks ago, one of the first things he did was was credit basically every coach he's had from AAU to high school to especially Lon Kruger for letting him play this way. And when I asked Kruger like what what how how would you let a freshman point guard do this? I mean, he is you know, he's 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 take his usage rate is like 40%, which is I think the highest in college basketball history, or at least since usage rate has been a metric that anyone bothered to track in college basketball. I think it helped that he went to Norman North High School in Norman, Oklahoma, about 15 minutes from Lon Kruger's office, because he could go and watch Trey Young uh, whenever he wanted. So he he saw firsthand over and over this magnetic effect that he had on every single game that he played. And so, um, you know, he comes to Oklahoma and one of the first things that he does when he gets on campus is they, they go on this trip to Europe uh, and, they, and they get, you know, 10, 15 days practicing and playing against teams. And it becomes pretty clear to Lon Kruger that the best thing that Oklahoma can do is just put the ball in Trey Young's hands and let him do whatever he wants. Um, and, I, you know, I think that it, 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 it is worth mentioning because most coaches, especially college coaches, um, especially older college coaches, um, would basically say, you need to fit into my system. And instead, Lon Kruger has essentially 
turned his team into an image of Trey Young. So they're taking more three-pointers. They're playing faster than ever. And he's letting him take these long, off-the-dribble threes early in the shot clock, which you have never seen in college basketball before. And that's in part because coaches never allowed it to happen before. Trey Young's father was a college basketball player and envisioned better things for his son than, than what he was able to accomplish. And it sounds like he envisioned that his son would go to Duke or Kentucky or a much bigger name program and not to a football school. So Trey Young's decision to go to Oklahoma is interesting in its own right. Do you think, Ben, that this has served him better than it might have if he had to go to play for Krzyzewski or somebody else? I think so. I, I think that those guys who get five-star recruits, um, you know, four on five of them every single year, they're much more loath to uh, allow that type of player to take over the team entirely uh, in their first year. In fact, you know, last week, John Calipari was asked about Trey Young, and he says he hopes that he would have come to the conclusion that Long Kruger did, which is to just let Trey Young be Trey Young, but he's not sure he would have. And I think we even go back to that that uh, incredible Kentucky team in 2015 when they had Carl Towns and they had Devin Booker. And what did Calipari do? He platooned them. None of those guys played more than 25 minutes a game, and certainly none of them had the ball in their hands as much as Trey Young did. So I think it's a lot easier probably for Oklahoma to do this than for a Duke or a Kentucky or North Carolina. And it's probably serving him better. I mean, he came into this season, um, you know, not uh, among the most highly touted freshmen in the country. And there's talk of him like being one of the number one or number two picks in the NBA draft this year. Uh, so his 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 stock has risen so much in such a short amount of time that I, I just don't think that would have happened at Duke or Kentucky. I want to get to his NBA draft stock in a second. But first, just more evidence that this is, in fact, a generational thing. There's a guy at LSU who I wrote about named Tremont Waters, who doesn't shoot as much as Trey Young does, but has made just some incredibly spectacular plays this year, shooting from 25, 30 feet, making off-balance shots, making game-winning shots. And he very similarly grew up not only watching these guys on YouTube, Steph and Chris Paul, and whoever, but he was kind of made by YouTube. Like he is somebody who became sort of like basket, like in this world became famous as somebody who is compared to Steph, compared to to Chris Paul. Um, from there are videos of him from when he was six years old, but especially since he was fourteen, Tremont Waters was touted in this way. And so we often think of that as being like a negative feedback loop. It's like, oh, they're encouraged to like play in this like you know style that's like not real basketball or whatever. But I think in some cases, and probably for Trey Young too, it can be a positive feedback loop. Where if you're making the baskets. If you're making the baskets. I mean, the down, the negative of that is if you've seen the video of LaMelo Ball like hoisting from, from 40 feet and like just getting air every time. I mean, like that is like watching somebody do what Trey Young does, but do it poorly is like, <laughs> is not fun to watch. Um, but uh, you know, the the other thing with Tremont Waters that's similar to what you said, Ben, is that the LSU coach is Will Wade. He's in his 30s, very like smart, um, statistically minded coach who realizes that it's smart for him to put the ball in his best player's hands and let him jack threes. The guy who does the color for LSU now is John Brady, who was their coach in 2006 with like the big baby Tyrus Thomas team. And he has said like, I would have benched this dude. Like there's, <laughs> there's no way I would have I would have let him play. 
yeah, there's a thin line between LaMelo Ball and Trey Young. But, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this recently. Do you remember uh, um, in that Christmas Warriors-Cavs game in 2015, which is probably the highest rated television game of that season, when Mark Jackson, uh, the former Warriors coach, comes on television and says, you know, I think to some extent that Steph Curry is hurting the game yeah, because yeah, yeah. all of these high school kids are watching him pull up from 30 feet and they're trying to do that themselves. Trey Young is one of those kids, right? He was in high school doing exactly what Mark Jackson said. But uh, what Mark Jackson was saying was that he feared that those kids would just see everything, would see the result of Steph Curry, right? They would see the 30-foot shots and not see the work that p- got put into that. And I think that's what we might see with LaMelo Ball, which is, you know, I've watched every episode of Ball in the Family, I'm proud to say. And <laughs> I don't I don't see LaMelo Ball putting up, uh, you know, hundreds of shots and working on his handle every single day the way that Trey Young did. In fact, when I asked Trey Young when he, you know, really started uh, focusing on his handle and, and thinking that he could play this way, he told me in eighth grade, eighth grade, he said, is when he started uh, treating basketball less like a game and more like his job, which was incredible to hear because he's still only 19 years old. And he's talking about when he was growing up, when he was younger. In eighth grade, he started treating basketball as a profession. Uh, and, I, and I think we're seeing the results now. And It'll be really interesting to see what happens once he gets to the NBA. Uh, you know, he said he doesn't want to compare himself to Stephen Curry in part because, you know, he's clearly not at that level yet. But he thinks, you know, anyone who plays like Steph probably uh, has a better chance of succeeding in today's NBA than they would have at any time of history in basketball. And I think he's probably right about that. And what I think is remarkable about and this is probably more a comment about Steph than anything, is that what we are seeing is... A, a crazy transformation in what basketball players are able to do. I mean, this game has been around for more than a hundred years, and yet there is this innovation that has allowed a smaller player to do things that not only would have been disdained ten years ago or fifteen years ago, but nobody thought possible. And now you've seen one guy do it and you think unicorn, but now there's a generation of players coming up that have demonstrated that it is possible to train yourself to be this kind of a player, the kind of a player that no one has seen before. And in the NBA, I think it's important to note that it's not only the coach that allows somebody like Steph Curry to do what he does, but it's the franchise itself. It's the general manager, it's the owner, whoever. And Steph Curry's success is going to give the GM of whatever team is in the top two or three permission to say, I'm taking this guy and I'm going <laughs> to let him do what he does best. I think that's totally right. Um, you have to remember, Steph Curry went seventh in the draft, right? And this was after he was Steph Curry of the 2008 NCAA tournament run, Steph Curry of the 2009 season when an opposing coach thought it was his best strategy to double team him for the entire game and essentially play four on three. Let me interrupt you for one second. The really notable thing of that YouTube video that I watched last night of the Oklahoma Davidson game was Fran Frischella, um, who called it and was a big supporter of Steph's said flat out, Blake Griffin is the best player in college basketball, and he's the obvious number one pick, as Steph Curry was scoring 44 points in that game. Yeah, it's, it's, Steph Curry was a known commodity, right? This was not a guy coming uh, from nowhere. It was not as if you know NBA GMs were discovering this kid from Davidson who they thought would be good. Everyone in the country knew who Steph Curry was. His father and- was an NBA player. Totally, right? He had the genes. He had the upbringing. He had the college history. 
And yet, you know, David Kahn still took two point guards in front of Stephen Curry. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen to Trey Young this time. Um, and I think he probably has Steph Curry to thank for that. Ben Cohen is a sports reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Check out his piece on Steph Curry and Trey Young. We'll link to it on our show page. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Bottom of the 19th inning coming up. We kid you not. Time to send these people home to bed. Popped into center. Charging on Pilar. Coming. He's not going to get it. Here comes Monkey. Here he comes. And we can all go home. The Red Sox have won it in 19-3-2. The final score is finally over. In the early morning hours, Mookie Betts looking absolutely exhausted and piling on Bedlam here at Fenway Park. That was Boston Red Sox play-by-play guy Dave O'Brien sounding very relieved that Hanley Ramirez singled the center field to knock in Mookie Betts. Last September, elevating the Red Sox to a 3-2 win over the Toronto Blue Jays. That 19-inning game was the longest in the majors last year by innings. The longest in Major League history was a 26-inning tie between the Boston Braves and Brooklyn Robins. That one took only three hours and 50 minutes. While the longest in the minors came in 1981, that was a 33-inning win for the Pawtucket Red Sox over the Rochester Red Wings. In a piece published on ESPN.com last week, Our pal Sam Miller asked, what if a baseball game went on longer than 26 innings, than 19 innings, than even 33 innings? What if it went on a lot longer, like 50 innings? Joining us now for this thought experiment is Sam Miller. He writes for ESPN. He's the co-author of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Hello, Sam. Hey, yo. How are you? I'm good. I I think I know the answer to this, and the answer Mm. is just because. But like, why did you think of 50 as the outer limit. Why not go to 75? Why not go to 100? If we're like getting wacky here, why did you stop at 50? I Yeah, I don't really know. I, I It might be because uh, there's a Justin Clue tweet that gets retweeted every time a game starts to go like past the 15th. Uh, I don't know if I was uh, directly influenced by this or not, but I've seen that tweet a billion times. The thing about a lot of these article ideas is they're on a list and then uh, you never get to them. And then four, four years later, you're like, well, what am I doing today? And it appeals to you. And so it also might have been a Luke, why'd you have to say 50 Luke uh, reference? Or it might have just been that I was trying to find a number that was reasonable enough that it could be completed, uh, but outlandish enough that everybody would hate it. So what you write in this piece is that if a game hypothetically got to something on the order of 50 innings, one of two things will happen. Either one team will quit or the nature of the sport will change mid-game into something we rarely see in baseball, but that has existed for a century on the fringes of American competition, endurance torture. I'm sort of interested in the way that sports has kind of been changing, it seems to me, in the last few years where the primary skill is to simply not get hurt uh, because everybody has to try so hard and be so physical Uh, and be so intense and really from such a young age 
that we're filtering out like two thirds of the, the good athletes by injury. And so while we're watching a sport that, you know, is about skill uh, and, and effort and, and everything like that, what we're kind of watching under the surface is a sport that is uh, about testing your ability to, to go harder, longer and forever. And so this is not a new thing. Like American culture has always had these kind of weird competitions where all of the nuance was taken away and it was just about how long could you do a thing before your body would die. And the ultimate example of this is marathon dancing from the 1920s where they weren't good dancers. Like they weren't even really dancing. They were just shuffling zombie like. Yeah, it was marathon standing. You guys aren't even good dancers. Heckles, were, it, heckles Sam from the crowd. They had to like come up with uh, with sort of uh, gimmicks to make them even dance because what they were doing was was really just like dead man shuffling. Uh, but it was really popular because you were watching this sadistic routine where the body was forced to something between uh, insanity uh, and uh, close to death. And so I uh, wanted to overlay those two threads of um, American competition kind of on top of each other, the, the aspect that is uh, kind of nuanced and skilled, and then the aspect that is simply about testing the limits of human forms. Yeah, and, and baseball is akin to a slow death in some ways. Anyway, um, I, Can like, I just interject to say yeah. they shoot utility infielders, don't, <laughs> don't they? they? Yeah. <laughs> yes, they well, yeah, the, yeah. That's it, a reference, of course, to they shoot horses, don't they? Which was a a book about um, movie. these marathon dances, and then a movie about the marathon dances. And that book was a big hit, uh, not in America, but among French existentialists. Which uh, I think is <laughs> tell, like I think that there's a there's a case that you can make that every winter baseball writers should write at least one article that might appeal to French French <laughs> existentialists. Agreed. Well, the, the, but the, the we game, interrupted Stefan. Yeah, the Go game Stephen. really appeals to French existentialists. I'm surprised it hasn't taken off in that community. Um, I like how you, you, you create a taxonomy of what would happen in your hypothetical 50-inning game because I think it is really true because there's a point where we as fans are rooting for – the unusual to happen. And I think we see that in every sporting event we watch. We want something weird to happen. That Scorigami. Distinguish it. Scorigami. Mm-hmm. Stefan Diggs. Um, sorry, Josh. <laughs> you want to see something outlandish occur. And you also, as you alluded to, Sam, you want to see human beings test the limits of what they are capable of accomplishing. And a 50-inning baseball game obviously would achieve that. And we have evidence of what would happen, and you detail it quite elaborately in your story from that 33-inning game between Pawtucket and Rochester in the 1980s, which included players named Wade Boggs and Cal Ripken Jr. Um, So your taxonomy, the first thing is, hey, this is cool, we're watching and playing in something important. The second is, oh shit, this is getting out of hand. Um, will it ever? Wow, end? They, they put that in an ESPN article. I'm 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 paraphrasing, <laughs> Sam. Okay. <laughs> By stage three, the athletes are on the verge of losing their minds, and stage four, the spectators are wondering whether they are truly sadistic. Um, Everybody kind of wants to get to stage four. I, as a fan, would love to get to stage four. Yeah, the tricky thing is that stage zero, which is um, like 
the game goes into the 10th and the 11th and the 12th and the 13th and you start worrying about work isn't that much fun. And so that's why by the time you get right. to the 19th um, inning of, of the, the Red Sox-Blue Jays game, there were, by some reports, only 700 people left. By the, um, you know, the, the 20s in the Rochester-Pawtucket game, there were, you know, double digits. And uh, there is something about the 14th inning that looks very familiar and dull. And that's why baseball is kind of toying with the idea of legislating it out of existence by uh, changing the rules in extra innings that will kind of force a resolution uh, and make games like this more or less impossible. And I don't blame them. I mean, the And they would are... do that by putting a runner at second base automatically to start the inning. Exactly. And so basically uh, almost ensuring that runs will score, uh, you know, like, like they do in, in football. Uh, these days by moving the ball up. Um, so, uh, the, you know, the, the cases that fans are voting with their feet in the 12th and 13th inning by leaving the game before the it ends. And I think that that's true of games in the 13th or 14th inning. But there is a game, there is a point in every game where uh, if a team scores in the top of the you know inning, I start rooting for that many runs and that many runs only in mm-hmm. the bottom of the inning. Uh, and we all, I, I mean, there is this potential out there that you, anytime you turn on the game, you might see something you've never seen before, that cliche, uh, but it's true. And we've never seen a game go 27, and we don't know what it would feel like until we got there. And we do want to see it. And once it starts to happen, it's really kind of exciting and rewarding. And once you get there, then I think everything changes about your um, rooting incentives. Right. The assumption is that it's not rewarding for the players. And I think psychologically, and, and Dan Barry wrote a lot about this in his book, Bottom of the 33rd, about the Pawtucket-Rochester game, is that f- the players kind of enter a different mental and physical zone. Do we know if it's true that Wade Boggs slept on third base? Is that documented? He, he, well, it's documented in the book. It's documented. Okay. He, he lay down, right, put, his head on, he put his head on third base. I don't think he fell yeah. asleep. <laughs> I think, it, and, and also, I, I believe, if I'm remembering the chronology correctly, I think that he did it while uh, play was stopped, while the umpires had gone underground to to get a message from the league commissioner or something like that. So, so it's not like he did it on a two-one count. Which, <laughs> to, to get a message from the league commissioner, it sounds like there's like a nuclear attack, like there had been a like a missile, maybe maybe like a, a missile test. They're they're going to like see how to preserve the like order of uh, you know the nation by going on going to their underground bunker so, well to some degree there's the uh, sorry I keep interrupting seven but to some degree it is uh, tough for the umpire in this situation because there is a precedent that games like this get suspended right in the 25 inning game between the White Sox and the Brewers the game got suspended in the 17th but that's because there was a, a league curfew at the time of 1 a.m and some cities will have curfews of 1 or 2 a.m and and so you're you kind of know that games get suspended but in a situation like the Red Sox Blue Jays there was nothing on the books that would suspend it. And the umpires in the, the Pawtucket-Rochester game also misunderstood and didn't think there was a curfew. So they had to figure out whether they could suspend it or not. And the umpire didn't think he had the authority to. And so he just kept on going. And when the commissioner found out about it, he freaked out and tried to get him on the phone. <laughs> So what do you think would happen with all the concern for player health and pitcher's arms and not wanting to ruin someone's career by making him pitch, you know, for 18 innings? um, 
let's talk about what would happen as a game progressed into the 25th and 30th before, and 35th. Before we inning. get to that, I want to tie up one loose end, which is that I feel like the idea that there would be a dwindling number of people in the stands just like is like a complete misunderstanding of how this game would play out. It would be on television and on social media. It would there would be a crowd of like millions that would be massing and assembling even as the crowd in the stands dwindled away. It's like when there's a great night match at the US Open, there might be, you know, it might be 2 a.m. and there are like a handful of people in the stands, but there's a huge audience on television That's and really online. That's really interesting that, that social media would change the dynamic and it probably changed the dynamic in the ballpark because if you live within 15 minutes of the stadium where the game is now in the 29th inning and you happen to be awake at four in the morning, this There's actually happened to drive over there and ac- get, get into the ballpark. This actually happened in a Nationals game last year. Dan Steinberg right. wrote a great piece about it that started extremely late due to rain and just they let people in for free and just like people came and got free ice cream and it was like the greatest game of the year. But you you had asked Sam about um, wait player. no I, I, wait 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 I want to respond to that I I totally agree with you and I think it goes back to the point again that this happens. Uh, probably not in the 16th. Or, so like it is dwindling in the 16th and the 17th. Yeah. And it, it's all about finding the moment where you realize that you're part of something that is historic. And I don't know exactly what inning that is. I think that the, the longest game that I can remember in the last decade or so is uh, 22 innings. So maybe 23 gets you there. Maybe you got to get to 25 and 26 when the history is. Maybe 20 does it. But there is definitely a point where everything changes. And as to the uh, the, the, the sort of way that the commerce at the ballpark breaks down too. all the um, vendors would be closed down. And so in the 25 inning longest college game, somebody uh, who was there recounted that, uh, that they were all starving. And so they went and they looted the, um, the food that had been, uh, that had been uh, confiscated at the entrance. So all this food that was illegal six hours earlier had suddenly became not only legal, but free. Uh, So it is true. Like would the gates be open? Would, would they be encouraging people to come down? We were wondering um, about the player health issue. That came up in the Texas-Boston College game, the longest college game, where Augie Garrido, the Texas manager, left his um, closer, Austin Wood, in for like 169 pitches. And Austin Wood was done with baseball three years later with shoulder issues. He said he wouldn't have changed anything and that it was a life-changing experience, but sort of looking at it from a distance and not having seen that game or like cared about it at the time, it seems impossibly cruel to leave that guy in the game and cut his career short. But, you know, the manager and the player are both like, we would have done it the same way. Yeah. And that was another uh, inspiration for looking at this topic is I I feel like 20 years ago would have been no doubt that you just, you played to win the game that you're in without any, ambivalence at all and if you have to use the next day's starter for 17 innings you would um but that something has changed in the last 10 years where uh, baseball teams take a much uh, more strategic and and long view long range view of things and so um i don't know that in every game and every situation you would see a team try i feel like you'd see a, a a lot quicker punt in a game like this and yet, at the end of it, you read all the quotes of, you know, from the players involved about how important the game was and how it's going to turn the season around and how losing it would have felt like losing two games and all of that. And so this Red Sox-Blue Jays game just happened to be a perfect um, game to, to use because, for one thing, the Red Sox really needed to win. They were sliding. The Yankees were like climbing really quickly on them, and they needed this game for the, you know, for the pennant race they were in. 
but also it was September, which means that you have uh, absurd numbers of human beings uh, that you can go to and players who aren't even really, uh, I, I mean, this is going to, this is crass, but who aren't really necessarily valuable to your long-term plans. So they had a couple of AAA starters who basically were fresh, available, and could have thrown for a really long time before they had a lawsuit. And so the, <laughs> it, it actually seemed like this one instance where you would have um, both a team that was interested in pushing things and the personnel that could support it. But that still would only get you to like the 34th. But I think that by the time you get to the 34th... I love that faux precision. That would get you to... Like- <laughs> That would get you two outs into the 34th, I think. <laughs> but once you get to the 34th, now I think that you've you've passed the point of no return. And now I think that you – like I at one point I have uh, Mookie Betts pitching, which uh, is absurd and would Red never Sox happen. outfielder Mookie Betts. Yeah, superstar outfielder. I mean like top five player in the game, outfielder Mookie Betts. Uh, but I think at this point you're you're doing whatever you can to win. I don't think that you lay uh, you know take take the foot off the gas pedal in the forty eight. And and I <laughs> um, and, and I think everyone enters a different zone. I think that's exactly right, Sam. I think there's a point where you cross over from wanting to get the hell out of there and go to bed and wanting to see what fate has in store for you. Um, in in the Dan Barry book about the the Pawtucket game. He uh, he writes about uh, a center fielder for Rochester, Dallas Williams, and he says uh, he feels so trapped by the night, a night in which he has yet to get a hit, that he's beginning to fear this is it. This is the end of the world, and this is where he will die in a never-ending game from which he cannot escape. And Maybe yet, a little poetic license there? There was a our, lot of poetic license in Dan. that book, as I, <laughs> as I noted in my, in my review in the New York Times. Um, but, uh, but all the players that Barry interviewed afterward – Talk about this as the, 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 the signal moment in their life. And I think if you ask Nicola Mahu and John Isner about their 2010 match that finished 70 to 68 in the third set or fifth set? Fifth set. Fifth set, even longer. Um, they would say this is the moment that defines their lives. So once you get past, I think, 36, Sam, I think 36 is really where you enter that territory of – Let's see how long this can go. So I want to end this by um, referring back to that Isner Mahu match. That was seventy sixty eight in the fifth, as Stefan said. Um, it's you know six all in tennis. After that is basically extra innings. So they basically played sixty three <laughs> extra innings uh, in that fifth set. And you noted Sam like the longest match before that in tennis had been seven hours, and this was eleven. Hours. Um, so this was just like a massive, crazy, like outlier, thousand-year storm of an outlier. And in reading your piece, I have to say, like I hadn't thought about it before, but I was surprised that the longest major league game has only been twenty-six innings, and that it was like a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, not not even real baseball. I mean, I treat twenty-five as the, and that one they didn't even resolve it; ended in a tie. Tie, right? So they should resume that game now. There was <laughs> <laughs> suspended. <laughs> put the put the corpses where they uh, where they would be on the field. Um, so Hardball Times did a piece a few years ago that said there had been fifteen thousand eight hundred and fifty eight extra inning games um, between nineteen fourteen and two thousand thirteen. So that's about sixteen thousand. Sam, you said that there's about a one in thirty thousand chance of an extra inning game uh, getting to the twenty seventh inning. So it wouldn't be like 
crazy to have a game that had already gone to 27 innings. Do you think after thinking about this and and um, looking through the history of long games in baseball, are you surprised that there hasn't been a game that's gone 30, 35, or 40 innings? Well, I'm actually not that surprised. I did a piece for uh, over the summer that looked at each extra inning and how it differs from the extra inning before. So how the 10th is different than the 11th and how the 11th is different than the 12th. And the 18th and 19th in modern baseball is really when the game usually starts to break down and the pitching is no longer major league quality. There's about a two or three mile per hour uh, drop in average fastball velocity once you get to the 19th inning. And it's just too hard to keep preventing runs. There's something about those middle extra innings that uh, that uh, is fairly offense suppressing. Uh, but once you get to the very end, it just it, it is its own force resolution. Uh, that's why the September game was kind of crucial because you had pitchers that could keep it at major league quality. On the other hand, when you look at the Mahu um, Isner game, uh, there was. I mean, the the math of that is staggering, and there just seemed to be some sort of gravity holding it together. Uh, that once the once the the the, st- the stasis you know got hold, it was just really hard to break. Even though the, they were playing it you know kind of different styles and with different energy levels, it still somehow held. Uh, so I I don't know. I mean, I, I'm 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 not surprised in the sense that it's really hard to get 27 scoreless innings in a row or whatever it would take. Uh, but I am kind of surprised because outliers don't tend to hold close to all the other, like, like you often have the outliers extreme and ridiculous. Uh, and in baseball, you, you often have the outlier that's extreme and ridiculous, but in this case, it's not, it's very close. Like a 25 or 26 inning game is just not that different than 22 or 23. And so I'm sort of disappointed uh, surprised, I don't really know. I don't know. How do I answer that? <laughs> so the way that you ended the game was really clever, but in order to like tout your piece and get people to read it, I'm going to leave that for um, readers of your story. Find out how the 15-inning game ends. Go to Sam's piece. We'll link to it on our, our show page. Um, Sam writes for ESPN, and he's the co-author of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Sam Miller, you crazy genius. Thank you. You're welcome. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls. And let's go back to that Rochester Pawtucket longest game in pro baseball history. 33 innings. A couple guys that you will have heard of from that game. We mentioned Wade Boggs. What other major leaguers, Stefan? Uh, we mentioned Cal Ripken. Bobby Ojeda was there. Um, Bruce Hurst. Bruce Hurst, yes. So the guy who got the winning hit was Marty not, Barrett also. Marty Barrett. Um, the guy who got the winning hit was not any of those guys. It was Pawtucket's Dave Koza. What can you tell us about Dave Koza? Well, he uh, was four for 13 in the first 32 innings of that game. Pretty good, four for 13. I think that was my, my batting line in eighth grade. Um, and uh, first baseman. They resumed the game two months later, and when they resumed the game, there were the stadium was packed, obviously. There were national news crews there, TV. 
And uh, it took 18 minutes to resolve the game. Koza came inning. through. Koza came through with a bases loaded single with none out in the bottom of the 33rd to win the game. Stefan, what is your Dave Koza? In the Atlantic the other day, my friend, the linguist and lexicographer Ben Zimmer, did a literary tour of the word shithole. It begins way back in 1629 in a bawdy Elizabethan poem, Six shittin' shoats did I shoot in thy mouth that I shot from my shithole. The colloquial sense, meaning a terrible place, Josh, probably emerged during World War I. It was first documented by the OED in 1930, and then, as Ben Zimmer details, runs through the novels of Bernard Malamud, Nick Hornby, James Elroy, Carl Hyacin, and others. But by far the best literary shithole reference is a sports literature shithole reference, and it is courtesy of Philip Roth in his 1973 novel, The Great American Novel. The book is best read when you are young and feeling spunky about writing, which is uh, when I read it, because it is a stream of consciousness over the top. It's absurd. The New York Times grumpy review back when the book came out said that, quote, Roth's determination to get in every joke he can think of about our past and present follies, patriotic paranoia, racism, sexual infantilism, the vulgarity of the media, finally is exhausting and self-defeating. Let me counter that by saying it's one of my favorite books, or at least was one of my favorite books when I read it. Yeah, me too. And I was probably 22 when I read it. Um, but the great American novel is about baseball. Roth got baseball and the American mythology around it and all sports. He got it dead right. The book tells the story of the Rupert Mundys of the big league Patriot League who have to play the entire 1943 season on the road because they've leased their home field in Port Rupert, New Jersey to the U.S. Department of War. The league is filled with replacement players, just like big league baseball was. And the Mundys are more notorious and more terrible than the rest of the teams. They finish 34 and 120, and spoiler alert, the history of the league is expunged after it goes communist. The players have names like Hothead Ptah, nicknamed Demur, Applejack Terminus, Gilgamesh, and Jean-Paul Frenchy Astarte. Get it? Jean-Paul Sartre Astarte. Yeah. And because we need to get to the shithole part, Big John Ball. Ball is the grandson of Baseball and the son of Spitball, who was banned from baseball after baseball banned his spitball when one day his dry ball was getting tagged. So he pulled down his pants and soaked the ball in urine and threw the piss ball for a strike and then walked off the mound and onto a train to Central America. Big John was 6'4", 230, inherited a contempt for the game's rulers, and was, quote, said to have never hit a homer sober in his life. He went to prison when he shot craps after the World Series with the Rookie of the Year and wiped the boy out with a pair of loaded dice. When he had 15 drinks under his belt, there was nobody like him at first base. In Kakula, for a game against the Reapers, some players take offense at a shabby welcome ceremony for the Homeless Mondays. Big John sets the players straight in the locker room. He takes a slug on the liniment bottle in the bottom of his locker and says, This being homeless is just about the best thing that has ever happened to you, if you only had the sense to know it. What do you care that you don't have a home and the hometown fans that go with it? What the hell is hometown fans but a bunch of dodos who all live in the same place and think that if we win, that's good for them, and if we lose, it ain't? And then we ain't none of us from that there town to begin with. 
why it could just as easy say port shithole across your uniform as the name of the place you only happen to be in by accident anyway. Ain't that so? Why, I even used to pretend like that's what it did say years ago. Instead of Ruppert, I'd look down at my shirt and I'd say to myself, hey, John, ain't you lucky to be playing for port shithole and the glory of the shithole fans? Boy, John, you sure do want to do your best and try real hard so you can bring honor to the shithole name. You damn fools, he said. You ain't from Ruppet. You never was and you never would be, not if you played there a million years. You are just a bunch of baseball players whose asses got bought up by one place instead of the other. If the great American novel Josh has ever turned into a film, that would be one hell of a locker room speech. Definitely. Yeah. He totally got what it means. Shithole nation. Shithole nation, man. Josh, what is your Dave Koza? Longtime ABC announcer Keith Jackson died at the age of 89 on Friday. He was, for many people of many generations, the voice of college football. The hyperbole is done. Now we can finally play the game. Look at that. Yippee! That compilation was by Jacqueline Tsai. Thank you, Jacqueline, for posting that on YouTube. I will say there was no Woe Nelly in there. So let's get a quick Woe Nelly into this afterball. Woe Nelly! There you go. Keith Woe Nelly Jackson. He didn't just do football, though. He covered 10 Olympics. He did auto racing. He did Wide World of Sports. And he was a baseball play-by-play guy. Uh, Remember this, Stefan? Hit high in the air to left field. Going to the corner, Yastrzemski. It's over the wall. It's a home run for Bucky Dent. Yankees get the lead 3-2, and it's just there. I'm so glad you played that. That was the famed Bucky Dent one-game playoff from uh, 1978. A real heartbreaker for the Red Sox fans. But we're talking about relative heartbreak. It does not compare to an August 8th, 1977 game between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Chicago Cubs. Outfielder Bobby Mercer was playing for the Cubs then, and earlier that day, he talked on the phone to a 12-year-old Cubs fan named Scott Krull, who was dying of cancer. Mercer had told the boy he would try to hit him a home run, and in what the Chicago Tribune described as Babe Ruth storybook fashion, Mercer would hit two homers in that Monday night game, and the second and the fourth inning although the Cubs would lose 7-6. to six. The game was on national TV on ABC, and Keith Jackson was the man in the booth. After one of Mercer's home runs, the uh, reports are conflicting which one it was, a Cubs official passed a note to Jackson, who then read on the air that Mercer had hit a home run for Scott Kroll, who is dying of bone cancer. The problem was Scott Kroll's parents had not told Scott Kroll that he was dying. We found out he had terminal cancer three years ago, Scott's father explained. If he doesn't ask you, you don't tell him. The UPI reported that the 12-year-old was put under sedation after Jackson's on-air announcement, stunned by the knowledge that he was about to die. It was wonderful for Mercer to call here, Scott's father said, but this announcement has been a bad thing for Scott. We've all taken it real hard. An ABC spokesman called it terrible and unfortunate, 
but passed the blame to the Cubs, saying the note Jackson had received had the boy's name on it, and it probably never occurred to Keith that the boy did not know. The Cubs official who passed the note said, you've got to be a little discreet about it. I assumed they wouldn't read that. I feel just awful. And Bobby Mercer said, it's a shame. I didn't know that he didn't know. What am I going to do? Keith Jackson apologized, saying he'd been caught up in what had been a wonderful moment. He said, I usually don't mention those kinds of things on the air, but after Mercer at those home runs, then came within inches of a third, I did. Scott Kroll died two weeks later on the morning of August 22nd. That night, Mercer hit another home run in a 3-2 Cubs win. Scott's aunt said in the papers, what Bobby Mercer did for Scotty is the highlight of his whole life. Bobby Mercer died of brain cancer in 2008, and now Jackson is dead too. I haven't seen anyone write about this episode this week, and I haven't seen it mentioned in Jackson's obituaries. I don't think the audio has been preserved anywhere on the internet. But the story was a very big deal back in August of 1977. It was on the front page above the fold in the Chicago Tribune, for instance, and Jackson got a fair bit of grief for his role in this. That August, a newspaper in Abilene, Texas, wrote an editorial that included the following words. A disservice has been done to Keith Jackson. He will never forget about Scott Kroll. He will never forgive himself, even though he realizes that he was only the unknowing instrument of another's bad judgment. Scott is dead, but Keith Jackson is not. He deserves to know that we understand his own feelings of grief, of shame, and of innocence. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out the Slate Money Podcast. It's a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the worlds of business and finance. It features Felix Salmon of Fusion, Slate's Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman, and political risk consultant Anna Shemansky. It's a weekly show. You'll get it every Saturday morning. You can get new episodes as soon as they come out at slate.com slash slate money. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. That's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.